All right, guys, you can take a seat. Open up your Bibles to the book of James. So there should be some Bibles around you if you need one, or you can just swipe open your phone. We are in the book of James, chapter 1, and today we're looking at verses 9 through 12. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Now, we're in this series in James called The Awakening. And the idea of this series is we are coming alive, we are being woke up to become who we're actually made to become. And it's, to, it's about becoming alive to the version of you that you're created for. Now, here's what James does. James gets a little bit, uh, well, he, he cuts you a bit. So James, is, it's, like, it's like he's holding up this special mirror. And what this mirror is doing is it's looking at your life, and it's measuring if you actually live the same way if you believed everything you said that you believed to be true. In other words, are your actions lining up with what you believe? Are your actions speaking louder than the words that you say you believe? And he's really pressing in on us. And, and, and what he's doing is he's, he's saying, okay, this is what it means to be a Christian. You believe this. Now, are you really one? Because if you are, it leads to a whole new heart and a whole new way of living. Now, I, I, it's like this mirror is giving you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Do you really believe or not? Now, let me say this before everybody starts freaking out. So what, the Bible tells us this very clearly. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Period. Done. End of sentence. So don't you dare think that the things that you are doing in your life are somehow adding to your salvation or somehow earning your salvation. It is not by our good works that we are saved, but by faith alone in Christ alone. However, James is saying that faith that you have does not remain alone. So when you look at Paul, St. Paul, in his writings, St. Paul will focus in a lot of his time on our new record. So we have this whole new record. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and we have this new perfect record where our sins, past, present, or future, will not be counted against us. They've been smashed. They've been done with. Cast as far as, as the east is from the west. You, it is done. It is finished. Now, that's what Paul's spending a lot of time talking about, but James... James focuses not as much on your new record. In fact, he's not really talking about that much at all. James focuses in on your new heart. Meaning, here's what happens to the Christian. The Christian, before they were a Christian, had a dead heart. It was stony, it was dark, it was lifeless. And then Jesus comes and he rips open our chest. And he takes a hammer to the stony heart and he breaks it apart. And he gives us this new heart of flesh that starts pumping this new life into us. That's what James is focusing in on. And so he's testing our faith and he's saying, hey, are you really alive the way you think you are? Because you're saying you are by what you believe. But is the way that you're living lining up with what you say you believe to be true? And so he's testing us to see if we're phonies. And before you have a panic attack and wonder if you really are a Christian or not, this, let me tell you this, your heart is prone to wander even after you become a Christian. But that doesn't mean, though your heart has been prone to wander, it does not mean that you are lost. It means that there's a battle happening in your life and there is evil that is after you, whether you want to believe that or not, and it is doing everything it can to try to make you not become who you are made to become in this life. 
So we have to do what Peter says, is to make your calling and election sure, meaning go on to maturity. But along with that, so it was just Halloween, and there was a lot of horror on TV, especially the political channels. (laughs) But here's the real horror in your life, and this is what James is saying. The real horror is that you could think that you are a Christian, but you might not actually be. And so James today is getting us to see what, the, what is the real meaning of belief. What does a true believer look like? So that's what he tells us. And then, you know, Proverbs fourteen twelve it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So I want to read our verses. Before I do, let me give you a summary of what I'm saying today. So today we're looking at faith, but we're defining it as endurance so endurance is, or steadfastness is faith that is stretched out through a period of time in your life, through a long period. And so what we're talking about today is looking backwards to these experiences that you have had of God, like real experiences where you are aware of his love and his grace and his mercy, and you hold on to those. And you stretch them out from one experience to the next, but then you also take your other hand and you, you, you grasp hold of this future promised hope of this life in heaven that is promised to you, and you hold them both in tension, and that keeps you upright and steadfast because you're holding them both. So let me read our verses. James, oh, and by the way, so James, super practical. So he says, here's how you know if you're doing this and remaining steadfast. He says, let's look at your status in life and how your status affects you. All right, so here you go. James 1, 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails, falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, faith. We all want eternal life. I would be shocked if I said to someone, here is the eternal bliss of promise that you are given by faith in Christ is that you enter into this eternal paradise of love and joy and it's yours and there's no hurting, death, or pain. I would be shocked if somebody said, no, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Now, someone could make the argument, and it's a good argument. There's, there's a guy named Dostoevsky, and he's the, like, this Christian um, novelist slash philosopher slash psychologist. And he says that humanity is built for a challenge. We're built for uh, struggle. And what, what he means by this is that if, if your life is going well, well, you're going to figure out a way to cause a problem. Because you need something to fight against. You need some type of struggle. Now, that's true. And that's what caused the great fall of humanity so long ago in the Garden of Eden. However, there's going to come a day in paradise where we don't have this longing to create this needless toil just to give ourselves something to do. But we'll always have something to do in paradise for eternity. But it will all, none of it will feel toilsome. It will all be productive and joyful to do. Now, I say all this to tell you that everybody wants heaven, whether they know it or not. They're longing, they're searching after the good life. And the story of Christianity is that there's a story happening all around us right now. 
And it's the work of God, the story of God. And to become a Christian is to be swept up into that story where the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is beginning to now inhabit this earth. That's what we want. That's what we're longing for. And the way there is through belief in God. So James is telling us what true belief is. And so, and he's getting at your heart. Not only your new record, but your new heart. So let's go back a little bit. So first, in verse 2 through 4, which we looked at weeks ago, it says something so wild and crazy. Count it joy when you face trials of various kinds. And then it goes on to say, because those trials are going to produce steadfastness or endurance. Now, what, what is that? Well, that's faith stretched out. And then that faith stretched out through trials will transform you. And then that transformation that you have gone through will then go back and lead you through another trial, but you'll be more fit for that trial because you'll be more transformed, which then you'll have more steadfastness because of that trial and that faith, which leads to more transformation, which then you go back and you face another trial, and it just continues on and on and on. And so, so look, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials, and has stood the test. So last week we looked especially how this, these trials and the steadfastness gives us wisdom. But this week we're looking at how all of this together, what faith is, and how it's endurance really. It's faith that's stretched out. And so it becomes this flywheel effect where the, the trials come, then the steadfastness of faith takes deeper root, which leads to transformation, and then you face the trial again. And so you have this flywheel effect. So imagine it like this. Imagine in the middle of the ocean, there's this... Oh, and by the way, it says without doubt, verses ago. Now, th this does not mean that you never doubt. Good luck with that, because you will always have doubt. It will plague you through your life. But what it's talking about is, is a life that clings to God even as the doubts are coming. Over time, there's a steadfastness. So, again, flywheel in the middle of the ocean. Imagine it there. And, or, or think of it like a, a Ferris wheel if you don't know what a flywheel is. And, and so instead of a spot where you sit on this Ferris wheel, there's a sail. And your job is to get this Ferris wheel spinning faster. And as that happens, the fastness of this Ferris wheel indicates your growth. And so you've got this lever down there, and you're pushing like crazy, trying to get this Ferris wheel moving, and it's barely moving. But then the wind of trials come. And as these winds of trials come, it starts moving the, this Ferris wheel a bit. Now, here's the problem. If you're not rooted in Christ, meaning you're not, you don't, your, your feet and your hands aren't dug into him, you're solid ground, then this Ferris wheel tips over, and you fall into the depths, into the abyss, into nothingness, and into death. But, that's all. But if you're rooted in him, what happens? Well, the Ferris wheel starts spinning faster and faster as the trials come, which indicate you are growing more and more and you're being transformed more and more as you go through this. So take everything that I just said, bundle it up, and that is the meaning of faith. Meaning you're taking your faith and it's being stretched out. Now, here's how you have to think about this. You talk to somebody, let's talk to a mature Christian, and you ask them about their story. What they're likely going to do is they're going to tell you some times in their life where they felt or experienced the presence of God deeply. They experienced grace, they experienced mercy, they experienced his love. And, and what's interesting is they're, they're not telling you their whole life. 
They're telling you these events. Now, here's the key to an enduring faith. You're taking those events, you're taking those moments, and you're stretching them out to today. Meeting this, there's going to be times where God is revealing himself to you tremendously, and it's going to be amazing. And there's going to be times where you're like, what, where, God, where did you go? And the key to having a faith that endures is holding on to those moments in the past and bringing them all the way up to today. So I've had some moments in my life. I remember in seminary, uh, I was sitting in this class, and the professor was taking us through Isaiah 53. And it's this beautiful chapter where it's talking about how there will become, there will, one will come who will be a suffering servant, who will suffer the wrath of God so that the people of God don't have to suffer that wrath. And then what the professor went on to show is that this is all pointing to Christ. And we looked at it all. We weighed it. I mean, we weighed this, these, this chapter out, and it was so clear to me. This is pointing to Christ. And I just, it just became so clear in that moment how much the wrath of all of my sins, God had for my sins, is satisfied on the cross of Christ. And I just felt so free. I, like, wanted to stand up and break out in song, and it took everything in me to not do it. There was tremendous joy, tremendous peace that was flooding into me. Now, I knew all of those things already. But for whatever reason, that was the time where God was going to show it to me in an amazing way. I remember uh, when I was a, a pastor at another church, I, when I took a break, I'd just walk around the campus and just pray. And for like this two-year period, I just had these great moments with God. And I think, why? Why were they coming to me then? I don't know, maybe preparing me for this? I don't know, but they were there. And then, I, and then I remember in college, so I, I was just, God made me deeply aware of my sin, so aware that it was like a horror to me, like I could not sleep at night a lot of nights. But it was weird because during those nights, God made very clear for me the reality of eternity. And it just, everything seemed so clear in those moments that eternity is, is a thing, something. And it, so it was like God was using my sin to show me eternity, and it was just, so what's happening? Well, these moments are coming, and so the key is, I've got to hold on to those moments, remember them, because remember the joy, remember the peace that was coming, because life is going to throw trials at you, and your temptation is going to be to say, ah, this must have not been real, because in that moment you're not feeling it, so you've got to hold on to what you once felt. There's going to be a whole, and that's what endurance is, holding on to those things that happen when God seems nowhere to be found. And by the way, especially if you're parents, I mean, if you're parents to young kids, when are you going to get the time to spend time with God? I mean, you really need like an hour in, in the word and prayer a day. And if you're like a, a mom, you're like, where in the world am I going to get that time? So that means for, for husbands, that means we have to step up and we have to make sure our wives have time with God. Um, but that's what we need. But it's likely you're not going to get it. So what does that mean? Well, You've got to hold on to the experiences that you had in the past and bring them forward to today. And, and, and notice, it's trials. And in verse 2, we know that these are trials of various kinds. So not only is this about heartache, loss, pain, suffering, death, like facing all of these things, it's not just about that. Because sometimes it's about this. Where did God go? felt him, I knew him in the past, and he seems nowhere to be found. And here's the thing. There is a kind of growth that will happen in your life that happens when you experience the presence of God. 
But there's another kind of growth that happens when you don't experience his presence. When he's like letting you go and do like, I mean, he's still watching you like a shepherd would. But he's, he's giving you some space to grow in a different way. And then there's another type of growth where it's called the dark night of the soul. Where, where God grabs you and he pulls you in so close that your face is, face is in his chest and your eyes are shut because you're just right in his chest and you can't see him and you think he's nowhere to be found, but he's holding you close. And what he's doing in that moment is he's burning off all of the, all of the things in this world that you are clinging to. He's like ripping them from your soul. He's ripping them from your heart and it feels painful, but he's with you that whole time and you have no idea as you're going through it. And so what do you do? Well, you have to remember what it felt like when you were very aware God is your God, and he is good, and he loves you, and he's merciful, and he's gracious, and he's good, and he's going to do, he's going to transform you. So you've got to stretch that out. Now, then, that is what belief is. That's what James is saying. This is what belief is. It's faith stretched out. Now, then, he says, okay, let's see if you're actually doing this. And he gets very practical. Now, here's something you have to understand about James versus Paul. So when you read Paul, Paul is like Plato. So Plato, the philosopher. So Plato is way up in the abstract. He's thinking way abstractly, and then what he does is he, he slowly brings things down to become more practical. But James is like the philosopher Aristotle, where Aristotle starts with what like, is right here that you can see, you can touch, you can feel, and that's what James is doing. He's starting very practical, and then he works his way up to God. And if you don't get that about these guys, they're going to drive you crazy because you're going to feel like they're saying the opposite thing, but they're actually just starting somewhere different. So James starts off very practical, and he says, let's look at something that every society obsesses over, our status. So James is writing to, to likely this group of churches or a bunch of churches, and he's making an assumption that in every church there will be both rich and poor. And Jesus says this. He says, the poor will always be among you. So there's something called Price's Law. I don't know if you've heard about this. I discovered this recently. So this guy, his last name is Price. And, and here's what he says. The square root of the number of people do half the work. Now, I know you have no idea what that means, so I'm going to explain it to you. So if you have 10 people, three of them will do half the work, but it's square roots. So that means if you have 100 people, 10 of them will do half the work. And if you have 10,000 people, 100 of them will do half the work. But this isn't just with work. It's with everything. It's with status. It's with your financial situation. It's with, you take, a, you take musicians, you take uh, singer-songwriters. You're going to see 1% of them have all of the success, have all of the money, and 99% of them don't have a single song that's been downloaded by someone and listened to. So it ends up playing out this way. Now, there might be some really talented people there that have gone undiscovered. But as soon as you get success, it kind of produces more success, more and more and more. So this plays out financially. This plays out uh, with fame. This plays out with your status in life. And, and by the way, this is not a political statement. This is James saying this is a reality in life. And he's saying here is how you should bring your faith into that scenario. So... James is saying, he's saying, how does your faith inform you when you are in a situation that is outside of your control? Now, now listen, listen, we've been talking about James, and James is putting a huge emphasis on human responsibility, but there are some things that are outside of your control. 
And when those things are outside of your control, James is saying, here is how your faith should inform this. And here's what he says. The poor person should boast in their exaltation and the rich in their humiliation. Now, this isn't supposed to be read as rich people should be humiliated and poor people should be exalted. It's not a glorious thing to be poor and and a hell to be rich. It's not what he's saying. He's teaching us something so important that we need to know. The secret of how to be content no matter what your situation is. He's telling us how to not let success go to our heads or failure go to our hearts. Now, look, let me read this to you. He's saying be like Christ. He's saying follow the pattern of Christ. There's a pattern here. Now, let me read it to you. It's in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This is what your faith, how it gets worked out in practical everyday parts of life. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Jesus has the highest status of all the cosmos, and he humbles himself by bringing himself to the lowest of status that there could be, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because he did that, he's actually exalted higher than he was before he had done that. He's living into his saviorness, his lordship, his kingship that, that is willing to be the suffering servant for all of humanity. And he's exalted all the more because of it. Now, practically speaking, here's what James is doing. If you're poor, remember what Jesus has accomplished for you. You know what this means for you? You are now a son or a daughter of the living God. There is no status higher than that. It lifts you up. You are, do you know how much worth God sees in you? I mean, I just, okay, think about this. He came into the world and he died a humiliating death on a cross because you are worth it to him. So if you have low status, like that does not have to define you. In fact, if you're, if you're letting it define you, you aren't living your faith out. You're failing to live out your faith. If you have low status, the living God has died in your place. Come on. Wake up to it. However, if you're, exalt, if you're in an already exalted position, you're doing really well, be humbled because the one who came before you, Christ, had all the glory and riches of heavens and he laid it all down and humiliated himself to the point of death on the cross. So therefore, you have to know this is the pattern of life in this world and it's the pattern of the Christian. It's this up and down. You're bringing yourself low and by doing it, you're exalted. You're making yourself a servant of all and that by doing that, you're exalted. Low status to high status. So, and you have to remember this. Trials are going to come on you just as the way they came on Christ. So, we, we remember this before. So, James talks about the waves and he sees us as waves and the wind comes. And if we don't have solid footing then we're going to be 
bouncing around in the ocean aimlessly. In other words, that's not a good thing. But if we're rooted in Christ, then your riches have a very, could very easily take you down. Or your low status could very easily take you down. But if you're rooted in Christ, you stay steady, you stay content, and all is well. And, and our verse talks about the scorching heat, but the way it could be translated is the scorching sun that sends the scorching wind upon us and burns us up. And here's what it's saying. All of us, rich or poor, have a scorching trial ahead of us, and it's death. All of us must face it. It's coming at all of us. Now, that could sink you down into the bottom of the ocean. I mean, or if you're rooted in Christ, it's like this. You're buried under the ground, but you become like a seed that's been watered by the living water of Christ, and you pop up risen from the grave. So that's the ultimate trial. But guess what? Each day we have these small trials that we must face that are like a death, whether we're rich or poor. And you've heard this before. I mean, it is said that rich people are the most unhappy. Now, I don't think that's true. I think it depends what their life is rooted in. What are they building their life upon? So, or perhaps they're, they're rich and they haven't really faced any trials. But remember what we said about trials. They'll give you joy because they're transforming you. Or, well, just remember this. If you're of low status, you're a child of God, so be exalted. And if you're of high status, this life will throw trials at you. So what you've got to do is you've got to build your life on him so that the trials don't knock you off. And you can live a life of contentment whether you are rich or poor because you know that if you're rich and trials come, well, you have Christ. Take all my riches away from me. I'm the same. Paul talks about this. He says, I, I have found the secret of being content. I know how to be brought high and how to be brought low. And what he says of the secret is I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This does not mean that if you play football and you put that Bible verse right underneath your eye, that you will throw touchdowns and you will win every game. Here's what it means. It means there's a better, bigger game at play. And it means whether you win or lose that game, you are content because you have Christ, and Christ is always enough. He's always greater than the game because he's the, he's the prize, and you have him. And there's a, there's a place where Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get to heaven. And the focus that Jesus is making here is that no one's coming to heaven except through me. He said, however, the second part of this, the secondary point, is that there's a tendency when we're chasing status and we've got it to cling to the things of this world. And the problem is when you cling to the things of this world, well, eventually this world is wiped away. And then if you're clinging to this world, you will be wiped away with it, and you'll be thrown into the bottom of the sea. But if you will cling to, to the world that is to come, you become like that seed that goes down into death and then comes up out alive. So here's what this mindset does. Understanding the pattern of Christ, the mindset makes you content. If you have nothing, you're content because you have Christ. If you have everything, it doesn't matter. You have Christ. He's greater. So you start clinging to him and that makes you generous even if you don't have any money you're like well, I have him I'm the richest man in the world and so okay that's what that does to you individually but what does it do to us socially well it eliminates jealousy 
and jealousy, well, it is an evil that will erupt into death. So there's, there's this study that was shown that, I don't know how they found it out, but, you know, if, if there's a place where there's a bunch of rich people, there's no murder. If there's a place where there's a bunch of poor people, there's no murder. But if you put rich and poor together alike, murder rates go through the roof. So if you let success go to your head and failure go to your heart, murder will go to the streets. Now, why is that? Well, jealousy shows itself when someone has something to boast about and someone else has nothing to boast about. And if you have nothing to boast about, well, and you see people who have something to boast about, well, that makes you want to kill them. At least in your mind, you're angry at them. And if that's happening, Jesus says, well, this is the same as murder. So, but listen to this, Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So if you're poor, don't fret. You have the greatest thing that anybody could ever have, Christ. And you understand him and know him. So to understand him means, well, you know what it means to follow him. It means you bring yourself low, but you're exalted because of it. You understand him. And you know him, meaning you are now a child of God. You know, we say it's all about who you know. You meet somebody who knows someone famous, well, they're telling you all about it. Especially if they meet someone famous. They're telling you everything about it. Why? Well, because they're trying to exalt themselves because they know somebody important. Do you know that you just, you know someone and he's the creator of the cosmos, the king of kings and the lord of lords and the savior of all the earth and he will one day rule the way he is meant to rule in this place and you know him. So what are you chasing after that you don't already have if you're a Christian? But we still do it. So when you feel like, when, when you're feeling this jealousy or this lack of contentment in your life, and I know you are, I know you guys are, you go on Facebook and you start feeling it, you're not content with the way your life is going, what do you do? Well, you have to reach back to these moments where you were experiencing the presence of God in a very real way, and you've got to hold on to that and bring it right up into the present until you have your next worshipful moment with God. I mean, that's why coming here is so important. Because this is the place where we're together. We're worshiping God together. And we're seeing other people worship God. And that, that builds us up in a way. Or if it doesn't, we go and we talk to them. And we're saying, hey, I'm struggling. And they say, oh, let me, let me, bring, oh, let me bring myself low in order to lift you up. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, so, so you have to, it's essential that you reach back. But the other thing you have to do is you have to reach forward to the life that is to come what James calls the crown of life. You have to, and well, okay, let's just go there. So the crown of life, the riches of heaven. It's on purpose that James calls this the crown of life. He's talking about the poor and the rich. And then what he says is everyone, poor and rich alike, will be crowned with life. They've been exalted after their great battle with death. In other words, they face the fiery trial of death. And they face the scorching heat. And guess what happened to them? They come out transformed. Now go back. Count it joy when you face trials of various kinds. Because by, by facing those, you are going to be transformed. Now, what's the ultimate transformation for the Christian? Well, 
you're with God completely and fully. So you know what that means? This is going to sound crazy when I say it. You could look at death coming to you as a joy because of what it will transform you into. The ultimate trial, the ultimate test. You know this word test that's in our verses, it's, it's pointing back to the Old Testament to this idea of smelting where, where you take a precious metal like gold and it's got all these impurities on it, but when it passes through the fire, all the impurities fall off of it and you're left looking at this object of great worth. And that is what's happening to us and the ultimate trial is death and when we face it, it's just but a shadow and we live through it as we pass through the fire and we come out completely transformed, the version of us we've always meant to become. So you can see it as joy. And you see this sometimes with a Christian, very old in age, lived their life, and it's, it's not even that they're like, they're okay, okay, death is coming, this is okay. They're like, it's coming. And I'm about to meet my God and my Savior and I'm I, like, like, it's almost like they're holding it back from us. Like, I don't want to tell you that I'm looking at this with joy, but I am. So, so what's up with that? Well, they're, they're, this is their faith. This is the steadfastness. This is the, the rootedness, the plantedness. You go to Christian funerals, especially somebody who, who is a mature Christian and they've lived a good long life. I mean, it doesn't just feel like you're celebrating their life. It feels like you're celebrating their death because they have gone to be with the one that their soul was made to be with. It's like the wise words of Dumbledore in Harry Potter. He says to Harry, hey, Harry, don't pity the dead. Pity the living and especially those who don't know love. And look at what James says. He says, the crown of life is given to those who love God. So how do you love God? We have to know him and understand him. And this isn't an abstract kind of love. This is a very real kind of love. A love that you experienced in these moments in the past. It felt real. And you're hanging on to them. But you're not just hanging on to the past moments. You're reaching forward to the moment that is to come when you enter into a world that is full of love. A world where the love of God can, it, it is everywhere. I mean, it's in the air you breathe. You, you're breathing this breath in and this, the particles have been infused with the love of God. You're eating food and you're eating food that has been in, in, infused with the spices of God. You're drinking water and you're drinking water that's been made with the purity of love. And it's a love that you look so forward to that you can stare death in the face and you can almost welcome, well, you can, you could welcome it as an old friend. Because it's just, it's, it's like, come on, I'm ready. And this sounds crazy, but this is James. He's saying, like, live out your faith. This is, this is for you. The greatest treasure of the cosmos awaits you. And even now, because guess what's happening? You're looking forward to this future, and you're envisioning it, and then that love begins to inhabit your heart and your soul and your mind, and then it begins to inhabit the way you're living your life. It's like time travel is happening, like you're reaching into the future and you're bringing it into the present. This is what imagining the kingdom of God is all about. And so the key, the, the art of walking through this life with endurance is taking the faith that you've experienced in the past and reaching forward to the faith of what you know is to come and you hold them both together. And it makes you steadfast and strong. I mean, look, you can't be moved if you're holding on to two things that can't be moved here. And so you hold tightly to them. And you keep holding him, 
you keep holding there through the trials, and then you start imagining this posture, and you say, wait, I've seen this before. And you think of Christ. And you know what he was doing upon the cross? He was reaching backwards in time, remembering who you were before this great fall and how everything just fell, how he lost you. But then he looked to the future of what you would one day become and how you would be with him for all of eternity, and he held on to both of them, and it's what led him right to the cross. And there, holding on to both, he was stretched out into death. And he dies, and he rises from the grave, and he does this. Why, why did this happen to him? Because he threw his crown down. So now we can throw down our crown of riches and status in this world and take up this new crown of life and hold on to him and then therefore live into this new life now. Not later, but it begins to inhabit the present life now. And that's available to us. Going all in with him. All right, I'm praying. God, give us Give us this experience right now, God, so that we're so aware of your grace and your mercy and your love that we are moved into worship. And if, God, if there's someone, if, there's, if, if they're like, we're here and it's not happening in our hearts and our souls and our minds right now, God, I pray that you would help us remember what was. These experiences that we have had and they were real and we knew it at the time and help us bring that into today, but help us, God, also to look to our future and cling tightly to that future, knowing that this world of love has already been secured for us through your death and resurrection. So God, help us to hold that tightly so we would remain steadfast and endure through the trials of this life. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we get to do something that is so good to do. Communion. Now, I, I need to explain to you communion a bit because I think a lot of times we don't actually understand what we're doing. So communion is the story of God being acted out. It's the story of him being stretched out. Like he's being stretched so much so that his blood is being spilled. And and we're, we're seeing it acted out, uh, but we're not just watching it being acted out. We stand up and we walk into the story and we participate in it by eating his body and his blood. I know that sounds weird. Just like, just go with it. Just, just think about this, okay? So the story of God coming to rescue you, he's the bread that's come down from heaven. His blood was spilled to, to make sure that this promise that he's made to you, that all of this life is secured. And it's so secured that he's willing to die and look, this is the God who is powerful among all things. Do you think if he gives his life for you, he's not going to make sure this promise doesn't come true? That's why it's so important that we see this happening. Because we say, no, I can believe this. But it's not just you're watching it. You are, you are entering into the divine drama. Because by you participating in this, it's you seeing yourself being written into the story. So not only do we have the visible words of what God has done for us, but we begin to live into those words. In other words, the great story of God saving humanity, we're in it. And we're seeing ourselves in it like divine actors in the play.
So that's why this is so important. And so when you, when you do this, you're saying, I believe this is true. And each step is you saying, I am in the story. Look at me. Like, I am an actor in this play, but it's not acting. This is real life. And I've been swept up into this great story, and I'm in it. So that's what communion is about. So we're going to have some time. Uh, so we don't have the normal bread. We have these little cups. And, and I know you guys told me last time, the, the bread tastes so gross, but look. We can do it, okay? This is a horrible trial that you must face, and you can get through it by the grace of God, and your faith will endure through this moment of taking this bread that is maybe a little stale. Um, so if we also have gluten-free bread for those who need gluten-free. They're just in the baggies here. So we're going to play a song, and as, as the song is being sung, you guys can stand and, and come up. But, but let, me, let me tell you how it all happened. So the night that Jesus was betrayed, before he's arrested, you know, he, get, he, he knows what's coming. He knows he's about to be stretched out. And so he's with his friends, and he says to them, he takes some bread, and he says, this is my body. It will be broken for you. He says, take and eat. And do it in what? In remembrance. Remember, remember, remember. And then the same way he takes the cup, and he pours it out. And he said, this is the, my blood that's been shed. Securing this promise that I made to you long ago, that I'm coming for you. I'm not going to leave us on our own. But he's writing a new story, and he seals this story with his blood. That's what a covenant is. It's a promise that's sealed in blood. So let me pray. I should have already prayed, but let me pray now. Um, God, we pray that your presence would... would be among us, that we would be so aware that you are here, that your spirit would uh, bounce around in the halls of our hearts and in our minds and would be upon us and over us so much so that we are aware that you are with us and that we would have a clear, vivid picture of our God, you, who's come, chased us down, secured us, would not let sin stand in the way between us and you. You did this for us and you rose from the grave. And you've promised that one day all things will be made right. And until then, we're going to cling in remembrance to this truth. So help us do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.